Welcome again. Thanks for joining us this morning. We're going to keep reading Psalm 106, uh, where Eric left off. We've been bouncing around uh, book four of the Psalms this summer. You might remember we've said that uh, each of the five books of the Psalms kind of has its own focus. There's a kind of a, a, a trajectory to the entire book, as big as it is and as random as it might seem. Uh, book four is mainly concerned with exile, with Israel being far from home. And this psalm is the last one of book four, kind of the capstone to this whole theme of being sent away from what's familiar and what's comfortable and what's joyful. So we'll keep going. Psalm 106, I'm going to pick up at verse 24. Remember, this is recounting the story of Israel. And so now they've been wandering through the wilderness and they're at the edge of the promised land. Psalm 106, starting at verse 24. Then they despised the pleasant land, having no faith in his promise. They murmured in their tents, and they did not obey the voice of the Lord. Therefore he raised his hand, and he swore to them that he would make them fall in the wilderness, and would make their offspring fall among the nations, scattering them among the lands. Then they yoked themselves to the Baal of Peor, and ate sacrifices offered to the dead. They provoked the Lord to anger with their deeds, and a plague broke out among them. Then Phinehas stood up and intervened, and the plague was stayed. And that was counted to him as righteousness from generation to generation forever. They angered him at the waters of Meribah, and it went ill with Moses on their account. For they made his spirit bitter, and he spoke rashly with his lips. They did not destroy the peoples as the Lord commanded them, but they mixed with the nations and learned to do as they did. They served their idols, which became a snare to them. They sacrificed their sons and their daughters to the demons. They poured out innocent blood, the blood of their sons and daughters, whom they sacrificed to the idols of Canaan, and the land was polluted with blood. Thus they became unclean by their acts and played the whore in their deeds. Then the anger of the Lord was kindled against his people. He abhorred his heritage. He gave them into the hand of the nations so that those who hated them ruled over them. Their enemies oppressed them. And they were brought into subjection under their power. Many times he delivered them, but they were rebellious in their purposes and were brought low through their iniquity. Nevertheless, he looked upon their distress when he heard their cry. For their sake he remembered his covenant and relented according to the abundance of his steadfast love. He caused them to be pitied by all those who held them captive. Save us, O Lord our God, and gather us from among the nations, that we may give thanks to your holy name and glory in your praise. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. And let all the people say, Amen. Praise the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, here at the end of this psalm, you command us to say, Amen, to agree with what you've done and with what you've said. And so we agree with it. We confess that as painful as it might be, as difficult as our lives might be, as difficult as this, the consequences for our sin might be, you are always right. You are always true. We must confess that you are good and you are wise. We agree with what you've said. Help us today as we look, go through it to understand what you've said, to apply it. Help us most of all to see in your son Jesus your abounding grace towards sinners like us. Help us, we pray in his name. Amen. 
one of the beginning uh, scenes in the musical or the movie or the book, depending on how you devour it, Les Miserables, one of the opening scenes uh, is the scene where the main character, Jean Valjean, he's a, a hardened thief. He's been in prison for a long time. He's just been released. Uh, and he's wandering around, uh, angry, trying to find somewhere to stay. The local bishop invites him over for dinner and invites him to stay in his house for the night. But before sunrise, Valjean steals the bishop's silverware that he's just been eating off of, uh, but then he gets quickly caught by the local police. They bring him back to the bishop, uh, sneeringly telling him that the convict has claimed that the bishop has given him all this silverware. Uh, But much to everybody's surprise, the bishop says, well, yes, I did. Uh, But he forgot the most valuable gift. He forgot the silver candlesticks. Take these too, he says to Jean Valjean. And so as he's handing him these these priceless candlesticks, he exhorts Valjean to use the money that he's going to get from selling them to now seek an honest life for God. The rest of the story is about Valjean's struggle to break free from his criminal past in service to God and other people. That scene and then the entire book that flows out of it is about the contrast between sin and grace. It's exemplified by this undeserved, unsought, life-changing gift from this bishop toward a cruel and ungrateful thief. Similarly, the psalm that we are looking at this morning is underscoring this contrast between Israel's persistent sin and God's patient mercy. It focuses most of its time, as we've heard, on the many ways that Israel's stubborn rebelliousness kept appearing over and over again throughout its entire history. But even though that's where it's spending most of its time, the main point of it is to highlight the wonder of God's grace toward Israel to highlight the wonder of God's grace toward us in our common sinfulness. Uh, This may seem like a strange story about a strange people that lived a long time ago, but the Bible says that Israel's problem is really our problem. Israel's story is a small picture of the entire human story. There's something uh, true of all of us in these things that Israel struggled with. As we go through these things, I encourage you to think of what are the ways that I'm like this? What are the ways that I've struggled in these ways? What are the ways that I've done these kinds of things? If you're here this morning and you think that you are basically good uh, or that you may only need a tiny bit of help from God, I'm going to have very little for you this morning. The text will probably appear to you to be depressingly gloomy and negative. But for those of you who have seen the depth and the persistence of your sin and of your apathy toward God and the things of God, if you've seen your inability to do anything about it in your own strength or your own power, then actually a psalm like this, a passage like this, gives you a message of profound hope. Like the bishop in Les Miserables, God's grace is greater than Israel's sin. God's grace is greater than our sin. The psalm sets up the whole thing with six verses. It's kind of a prologue laying out everything that's going to go through. Uh, It says, start right there. It's calling us overall, I think, to praise this God of steadfast love. It just starts right away, like a lot of the Psalms do, saying, praise the Lord, praise God. And then the logical question is, well, why? Why should I praise God? And he explains it for you. He focuses on God's mighty mercy as the reason that you should respond to him with praise and with adoration, why the entire focus of your life should be on him and not on yourself. He says, give thanks to the Lord. He's good. 
His steadfast love endures forever. This means that He lovingly and patiently keeps His promises to us, even in the darkest storms. Verse 2 then rhetorically asks, if anybody is able to utter the mighty deeds of the Lord or to declare all of His praise. And the answer to that rhetorical question is, of course not. Even in eternity, we will not have enough time to even begin to plumb the depths of the beauty of God and what He's done. Verse 3 reminds us that a life that's lived to and before this majestic God is the truly good life. It says, Blessed are those who observe justice. Blessed are those who do righteousness at all times. And if so, the point is this. If God's like this, if God is a, a faithful, majestic God who always keeps His promises, how could anybody not want to know Him? How could anybody not want to live in such a way that pleases Him and reflects Him and finding the blessing that comes with it? The psalmist then personally and individually asks that he might be included in God's blessing for his people. He says, oh Lord, I want to be part of that too. But then you get to verse 6. And at first, it's kind of like the fingers on the chalkboard. It looks and it sounds really out of place with what we've just been hearing about. About this joy and this confidence and this hope. Listen to verse 6. All of a sudden it says this, both we and our fathers have sinned. We've committed iniquity. Literally, it says, we've twisted. It says, we've done wickedness. Literally, it says, we've incriminated ourselves. The psalmist is suddenly confessing his own sin as being just more of the same kind of sin that has always marked Israel's history, his own forefathers. And so as you get to verse 6, it colors what you just heard in the first five verses. Remember, he said, who can utter the mighty deeds of the Lord. But then in light of verse 6, the answer is, well, I, I certainly haven't. My ancestors certainly haven't. And then remember he said, blessed are those who observe justice, who do what God wants, who treat other people in the way they deserve. Well, if I'm uh, sinful, just like my forefathers have always been, then I haven't been doing that. We can't really demand or expect this blessing, this good life that God says comes with doing what he wants. And so the point is all of a sudden we're being reminded that there's something profoundly wrong with us, something profoundly wrong with Israel, something profoundly wrong with me. The psalm opens and closes with this call to praise the God of steadfast love. But in the face of my and our overwhelming twistedness, how can we expect or find God's love? We should praise Him. We should admit that He's loving, that He's faithful, that He's patient. But if I'm like this, if we've always been like this, how can we ever expect to enjoy the blessing He wants to give us? And so the psalm now unpacks Israel's sad story of sin. And like I said, at first it might seem to be just totally depressing. In a sense, it is. Uh, if Israel, with all of their many privileges and blessings, they heard from God in a way that nobody had done in the entire world, that they had these wonderful uh, messages, they had these wonderful pictures and institutions, if they, of all people, struggled so deeply, if they were so sinful, then what's the hope for anybody else? It's a very dark message. But in a deeper sense, this recounting of Israel's sad story of spiritual sickness should encourage us. 
psalm wants to show us even more than it wants to show us how serious and how deep sin runs it wants to show us most of all how much deeper god's mercy and grace run so look at verse 7 where this roadmap of israel's sin begins the long middle section of the poem is not strictly concerned with exact chronology. If you go back and line it up with the stories in the Old Testament, you'll find that it's moving things all over the place. Uh, it's not really concerned with getting things in the right order. It's a poem that seems more interested in placing things in order of increasing severity. Israel's sin getting worse and worse and worse. They're spiraling downward into far more severe uh, ways of rejecting God and God more severely and seriously responding to it with judgment. But here at the beginning, you start out with Israel having just left Egypt uh, in the wake of God's miraculous plagues upon it. But it says that even when they were still in Egypt, they did not consider your wondrous works. They didn't remember the abundance of your steadfast love, but they rebelled by the sea. And so Israel has just barely left slavery. They're not even out of Egypt yet. And they are so quickly forgetting who God is and what he's done. It might seem ridiculous to us. How could they possibly forget? They were just seeing these amazing things. It's undeniable that God was behind them and supporting them. But we're not really that different from them. We should be uh, careful about judging them. One of the great horrors of a disease like Alzheimer's is that people no longer recognize their families or their friends. They don't remember who they are. Many of us fear that we might become like that in our old age. But how much worse is it, how much more horrible is it to forget your creator? He's around you. He's in everything, all over the place. He's always revealing himself to you. How horrible to forget who he is, everything he's done, everything he's given us. The psalmist says that this forgetfulness on the shores of the Red Sea when Israel was totally panicking, when they were thinking that they were going to get wiped out by the Egyptian army that's now chasing them, that it was really, this forgetfulness is really a kind of rebelliousness. They are implicitly telling God, we don't need you. You are unable to do what we want. You don't know what's good for us. And yet, verse 8, God responds with mercy. It says that God saved them for his name's sake so that he might make known his mighty power. God miraculously provides a way through the watery chaos. He saves them from the hand of the foe, it tells us. Literally, it says he saves them from the hand of the hater. He redeems them from the power of the enemy. And so Israel, right there, right after God's done all these wonderful things for them, they are now acting like an ungrateful, self-absorbed child. But God saves them anyways. He's gracious in his saving power towards his people, even when they're very ungrateful, even when they forget what he's done. In verse 12, we hear that things look positive for a little bit. Israel passes through the sea and now they trust God's word and they're singing and dancing about what he's done. But then verse 13, they quickly revert. They soon forgot his works. They didn't wait for his counsel. And so once again, they don't remember who God is or what he's done. And this makes them impatient with his input and his wisdom and his guidance. And so now you hear about the ways that they reject God while they're on their way home to the promised land. They've left Egypt and we have a couple of little episodes of them getting back to home, going to their home in Canaan. And so verse 14 tells us that first they became greedy and discontent. They had a wanton craving in the wilderness. And so this is talking about one of the stories where they start complaining about how they have no food and how God must have brought them out into the wilderness just to kill them, just to torture them. 
And so it literally says here that they craved a craving. The word here is often used in the Bible to describe dark longings behind gluttony and decadence. But then somewhat surprisingly, the psalm says God gives them what they want. I suppose something like a parent who throws up their hands and tells their kids, sure, eat all your Halloween candy, go for it, find out what happens. The consequence, of course, is that Israel suffers from a wasting disease. And so as we continue to see all over the world today, God often hands people over to their own destructive desires. Some of you can speak to this in your own lives. Times when God let you do whatever you wanted. It wasn't good. Sometimes God lets us suffer the consequences of our insane attempts to live apart from him. In verse 16, you hear about another story, an episode of jealousy. Some of the people get real prickly about God placing Moses and his brother Aaron in charge. And so they say, who do these guys think they are? Who do they think they are telling us what God wants? They exaggerate their own abilities. They demand to get to do whatever they want. And so God then turns the world against them. A crevice appears in the ground and swallows up these jealous malcontents. It's a pretty amazing way to end a congregational meeting. A bunch of people fall into the ground and then it closes back up over them. They're gone. Not that I've ever wished that would happen. You guys are great. <laughs> so Israel's forgetfulness at the Red Sea to which God responds only with mercy and patience, it's now shifting into this discontentment and jealousy. And so God's starting to respond with this measure of judgment. Uh, that first episode, there was no judgment. It just says, well, God just, God just saved them. Uh, now we have a couple of things where God's responding with some limited instances. The psalm is emphasizing God's gra- grace and mercy, but it does not deny that God's right and good response to sin is wrath. Grace is grace because it's undeserved. Israel and we deserve to be judged by God for what we've done against him. Even these apparently innocent things like discontentment. But things take a much darker turn in verse 19 with this recounting of Israel's worship of the golden calf at the foot of Mount Sinai. Now, this is the horror of all horrors in the sad story of Israel. Right after God brings Israel out of Egypt, right after he reveals himself to them, he speaks the Ten Commandments directly to them. They all can hear the Ten Commandments straight from the top of the mountain. Right after God and the people then commit themselves to each other forever and ever, Uh, while Moses is up on the mountain receiving God's instructions about how to build this tent where God says, I'm going to graciously dwell among you and meet with you and speak to you. Uh, While all that's going on, Israel gets tired of waiting around. They get bored. And so they build this idol of a golden calf and they throw a raging party to worship it. And so it's something like this. Imagine going to a beautiful wedding and the couple gleefully hopping in their car to go off on their wonderful honeymoon And then the next morning, one of them jumps on Tinder and barrels headlong into infidelity. That's what's going on with the golden calf. And so verse 20 says that they exchanged the glory of God for the image of an ox that eats grass. I mean no offense to cows, but the point is that they thought they could take the majestic glory of the God who created the universe, the majestic glory of the God who crushed the pride of the world's greatest state. And then they swap it out for that glory of a hokey DIY statue 
of a stupid cow that depends on grass. Once again, verse 21 tells us this is a result of them forgetting who God is, forgetting what God has done. And so God responds with this threat of judgment, something far more severe than what we've already heard about. He said he would destroy them. He said, I'll start over. I'll wipe you out. But Moses prays to God on behalf of the people to turn away his wrath from destroying them. Now, this is, a, this is a complicated theological topic, and I'd be happy to talk with you afterwards about these places in the Bible where it seems like God is changing his mind. Uh, God is not actually changing his mind. Moses uh, did not uh, convince him to do something else as if he needed to be kind of coaxed or cajoled into cooling off. God never changes. God's ultimate purpose all along was to not destroy Israel, and the way that God ultimately purposed that was through having Moses be the intercessor as a prefigurement of Jesus going between us and God. The point is to underscore how horrible all of it is. They do deserve to be destroyed. And yet, even more, the point is to show us how shocking and how marvelous God's grace is. At verse 24, you hear about what happened when Israel was no longer just on the way home, but now when they actually get barred from their home, they are prevented from going in. And God says, well, you're going to have to wander around for a while. Israel's merciful God, in spite of their unfaithfulness to him, brings them to the edge of the promised land. Uh, It says literally in the Hebrew that it's a pleasant land, a delightful land, a precious land. And yet we hear there in verse 24 that they despised it. They had no faith in his promise. And so God is saying to them, he brings them right up to the land. He says, this is going to be your home. This is what I've been promising you. It's going to be wonderful. It's going to be peaceful. It's going to be prosperous. Everything's going to work out right. It is not going to be easy for you to settle in there. But don't worry. I will take care of you. I will fight all the bad guys for you. I'll do all the hard work for you. All you have to do is trust me and keep taking steps going forward. But Israel murmurs. They complain. They grumble. They say, no, you won't. They say, it's too hard. It's too costly. You're demanding too much of us. You don't know what you're talking about. We know better than you what's best for us. And so verse 26 God's offered them this wonderful gift that they've rejected. He responds with more judgment. He says, fine, you don't want to enjoy the good life that I have for you in this place? Then you won't. He sends Israel on 40 years of wandering through the wilderness outside of their home until the entire generation of complainers has died off. But in the meantime, there's more sin and more dreadful sin. In verse 28, you hear that Israel has yoked themselves to the Baal of Peor. Baal is a god from Canaan. It says that they ate sacrifices to the dead. Uh, this is language that will sound familiar to those of you that know addiction. It says that they yoke themselves, they have subjected themselves to a god who makes promises that he can't keep and destroys them in the process. As part of their occultic worship of this other god in the wilderness, they engage in wild debauchery. Baal was the Canaanite god of fertility. And in the ancient Near East, the worshippers thought that you could help him do his work if you engaged in acts of sex while worshipping him. So Israel jumps in on that party. Sounds pretty fun. But God sends a plague upon them in judgment. He's already told them you cannot be doing that kind of thing. It's not appropriate to mix worship with these things. God sends a plague, but God also mercifully puts a stop to it when a man named Phineas angrily stands up for God even though everybody else is having a grand old time. 
Again, it's another little glimpse of what Jesus would do. Jesus would come uh, when nobody else was looking for God and he would stand up and he'd say, I'm here to do God's will. I'm here to, to put a stop to the plague. We've heard about Moses and now Phineas being these bold and godly leaders. But now in verse 32, you hear that even Moses is prone to the same angry rebelliousness that has so marked Israel. The people complain again about how God can't and won't take care of them. And Moses has now been hearing this for many years. And he is so sick of it that he flips out on them. He starts shouting at them, berating them. He gets really mad. In the process, he also angrily disobeys what God had told him to do in order to provide for them. Uh, They're complaining this story about how they don't have water. And God says, okay, I'll give them water. Uh, Moses, you go talk to that rock over there and I'll make a bunch of water come out of the rock. But Moses is so mad that instead of talking to the rock like he's supposed to, he takes a stick and he whacks it super hard. And God says, you need to calm down. You're not listening to me. You're getting way carried away. And so as a consequence, Moses too is barred from the promised land. Even he is not immune from the dreadful sickness of sin. Uh, You hear about Israel and how bad everything is going for them, but you hear about Moses at the beginning, you think, wow, Moses is pretty good. Wow, this guy Phineas is pretty good. Maybe what we need is uh, one good apple. Maybe there's a couple of good people out there who can stand up and be really courageous for God and do what he wants. But part of the point is that even Moses can't do this. Even Moses is prone to the same angry rebelliousness. In verse 34, you hear about what they were like once they finally got home. They finally do eventually get to go into the promised land. And you might think, well, maybe now this change of scenery will fix all these problems that they're having. But even going into the promised land doesn't fix it. They didn't destroy the peoples of Canaan as the Lord commanded them, but instead they did the very things that God had warned them against. The whole reason behind his command to finally carry out his judgment on Canaan that he'd been so patiently for centuries holding back on them. They compromised. They acclimated to the surrounding world. It says that they mixed with the nations. They learned to do as they did. Then and now, God wants his people to be distinct from the rest of the world. That doesn't mean we escape from the world or that we never have anything to do with it. But it means that we should be distinct from it. We should look different because God is distinct from the world. This is what it means to say that he's holy. And so when his people's lives, when those who claim to know God, when their lives look no different than anybody else's, what you are communicating is that God does not really matter. That God is not really powerful. That God doesn't really care. And so in Israel's case, they start worshiping the gods of the surrounding peoples. They even go so far as to sacrifice their own children to these demonic forces. Uh, Today, I'm pretty sure none of you are tempted to worship Baal, but all of us are tempted to worship our world's gods, even if it means ignoring or even killing the weakest among us. We worship things like wealth, comfort, pleasure, career, status. Uh, They're not little statues that we bow down to, but they're all gods. They all make promises they can't keep. They all destroy us in the process. When Israel and we turn to other gods, it's a kind of horrific spiritual adultery. Look at verse 39. It says that they became unclean by their acts. They played the whore by their deeds. God's own people, in a sense, had become repulsive to him. It says that he abhorred his heritage. This is really bad. This is so depressing in a way. And so God eventually responds to their descent into idolatry and murder by sending tyrannical rulers to hate them and oppress them. And then finally, by booting them out of the promised land, off into exile, which he'd been warning them about 
over centuries and centuries of sending prophets saying, you guys got to stop doing this. It's not going to be good. It's not going to be good. But they took all the warnings and how long it all took. They took that as an indication that God didn't really care, that it was going to be fine. They could just kind of keep doing whatever they wanted. It's one long story of defiance and ingratitude. Verse 43 sums it all up. Many times he delivered them, but they were rebellious in their purposes and they were brought low through their iniquities. And so it begins with what might have looked pretty innocent. They were forgetful. And then they kind of complained a lot. It doesn't sound that bad. What's the harm? But it ends with them worshiping demons and slaughtering their own children. And so after many, many years of patiently warning them, God responds with judgment. But their history was also always marked by His grace, by His mercy. You can see it in people like Moses, but you can also see it in their institutions, things like the priesthood and the sacrificial system. The whole point of all that was to say, God has made a way for you to come to Him even though you don't deserve it. Verse 44 says, Nevertheless, in spite of this long story of rebelliousness, nevertheless, he looked upon their distress when he heard their cry. For their sake, he remembered his covenant. He relented according to the abundance of his steadfast love. They don't deserve any of this, but he does it anyways. We don't deserve it either. Seeing the depth of Israel's sin and seeing the depth of my sin, it should lead us into deep humility. We have nothing to offer. There's nothing in us that would cause or move God to love us. We are failures through and through. A lot of times we'd like to pretend otherwise. We like to act like we're fine. We like to tell ourselves otherwise. But this is the truth. We've got the same heart sickness as Israel. The grumbling the forgetfulness, the jealousy, the idolatry, the bondage, the idols, the anger, the compromises, even murder, if we can get away with it. But this humility, what Jesus calls being poor in spirit, this humility should lead us to say with the psalmist, verse 47, save us. You notice that's how he responds. He goes through and through and through and it's getting worse and worse and worse and worse. Israel you know, is ungrateful. We're all like them. I've sinned just like them. And then all he can say at the end is save us. Uh, we don't need advice. We don't need a boost. We don't just need help. We don't need God to be a personal trainer or a coach or even a boss. We don't need a second chance. We don't need a blank slate. We need nothing less than salvation. Radical rescue. We need to be saved from our sin and from all of its misery. Jesus' name means the Lord saves. When Mary finds out that she's pregnant with Jesus, an angel comes and says, you're going to name him Jesus because Jesus means the Lord saves. We find this salvation, this rescue in him. This is where God has focused all of his might, all of his power, all of his grace to save in his beloved son who like Moses offers himself on our behalf so that we can come to God and enjoy the blessed life that only he can give. Our sin is great. It's really bad. Israel's sin is really bad. Our sin is really bad too. It's worse than all of us think. 
But God's grace is greater. It goes deeper. So as the psalm says at the end, you should praise the Lord. You should give thanks to Him. You should glory in Him. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Let all the people say, Amen. Let's pray. Father, once again we say, Amen. We agree that our sin is horrible. It's so much worse than we even want to imagine. But we're so grateful that Your grace goes so much deeper than our twistedness, than the games that we play to deceive ourselves and other people and You. We thank You for Your mercy and Your grace. Help us to live lives of deep, profound humility uh, that produces joy and peace and obedience. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.